Welcome to the Teaching Journeys podcast with Dave Roberts. A unique skill all humans have is the ability to share information across generations. And the Teaching Journeys podcast does just that. It creates learning opportunities with each amazing guest with a goal that each episode makes a positive impact on people worldwide. Before we hear from today's guest, please share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues. And don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I am your host, Dave Roberts, and today I have the pleasure of having as my guest, Kathy Gleason. Kathy is the, the host of the podcast, As I Live and Grieve. She has worked and continued to volunteer in the realm of hospice and palliative care. Her greatest knowledge of grief is because she is a griever. Four times in her life, Kathy has lost someone vital. Each experience was different. And Kathy believes grief is a lifelong state and that we learn to live with our grief and continue. And I must say that I was a guest on your podcast, Kathy, a while back, and it was a great experience. And I'm just so grateful that you took some time out of your day to spend with me and our listeners today. Oh, it's definitely my pleasure, Dave. Um, you and I always seem to have great conversations anytime our paths happen to cross. That podcast was no different, and today will be the same as well. I think there's just something about it, uh, the chemistry and everything. We have really great conversations, and thanks for having me here. Oh, you're welcome. And I believe you're also another fellow upstate New York individual. Absolutely. You're from the Rochester area. Am I correct? You're absolutely correct. Just down Highway 90. <laughs> yep. And yeah, I'm probably about two and a half hours from you yeah. in Whitesboro, New York. And yeah. um, so, I mean, who knows? Maybe one of these days I'll find myself in Rochester and we can connect to have lunch and talk in person. Oh, that would be great. Or even meet halfway. I'm amenable to all of those opportunities. And I know it'll happen at some point. I, I know it will too. So today, we're going to talk about taking care of the caregiver, and I know that's an area that you've had a lot of experience with, Kathy. Yep. So to begin, I'm going to ask you to tell us about the experience or experiences that have influenced your life path and has gotten you to this present moment. Oh, boy. It's kind of a, a tangled story at some points because in some ways, I've always kind of been a caregiver type uh, if that's understandable, whether I was in high school or whether in my jobs or anything, I was the person who kind of reached out to someone that I thought might just need a shoulder to cry on or lean on or an ear to talk to. That's always been my nature. But when you put that concept with the, the inevitable death, I used to be so terrified of the word death that I would avoid any and all conversations that might touch that topic. And, and I tell the story on my podcast every so often about my mom, God bless her. She certainly was one of my losses. She was the third major loss in my life. She was the inveterate planner. She planned everything, including her funeral. She went to the funeral home. She picked out her casket. She paid for it. She paid for the service. She even had a template for the program for her memorial service, for her funeral service. Now, I admit that that was a great gift once she did die, that I didn't have to make all those decisions. But 
it's just my brother and I, and she always wanted to tell us kids what she had done and talk about her plans. So she would invariably say to me, because my brother took off for Florida once he retired from Kodak. So she would say, Kathleen, I'd like you to come over tonight because I want to tell you about this, or I want to show you the folder where I've written everything down for after I die. And I would make up the lamest excuses so as to not do it. Then lo and behold, later in my life, I find myself working as a consultant for a hospice home where people come to die. And I kind of explained it away thinking, oh my gosh, you know, the office is in the basement, so I'll be okay. I won't have to be anywhere near the people. I won't have to hear it. I won't have to be exposed to it. And that worked for about a month. And there was this adorable, wonderful, wonderful, loving nurse named Anne, who one time when I was there working, came down to me and said, Kathy, I need your help for a minute. And I said, what do you need? She said, well, I need to turn Rosie in her bed. And I just, I need an extra pair of hands because I need to take care of her and change her wound dressing. I just need someone to kind of hold her in position because she's not capable. And I looked around and she said, it's just you and me, sweetie. And I said, all right. And I went up. Well, that seemed to happen a little more frequently as the days went on. And before you know it, I would stop by that room and say hi to whoever happened to be in the bed. I would go in and sit down. I might read to them. I might talk to them. I would talk to the family. Then I found myself hugging the family when their loved one died. Before you know it, I was hooked. I was in there. And that's the way for a long time I gave care. Then at one point, my husband, as we were having lunch, had what I thought he was having a stroke. 24 hours later, he'd been to the hospital having test after test after test, was diagnosed with a glioblastoma, and we were told it was terminal. There's absolutely no cure. The only thing you do not know is how long. It could be one month. It could be five years. Nobody knows. I started the process, without even thinking about it, of taking care of my husband. And taking care of someone with a terminal illness means not only doing what you can physically to help them, but doing what you can emotionally to support them, as well as being their champion, being their advocate with the medical team. And I had some incredible discussions with the medical team. At one point, I even fired his doctor because they were not giving me the answers I felt we needed. So that's kind of how I got into the caregiving business. My husband did die, yet I found myself at that point so immersed in the experience of helping someone who's dying that I just kind of stayed right there in that niche. Shortly thereafter, I started the podcast, and in helping others, guess what? I helped myself. I helped myself heal to the person I am today. And I think when we immerse ourselves in and, and commit to helping others, I think we do get a tremendous amount of satisfaction in the we process. Do. We help ourselves. And it, it, caregiving, and, and, and again, I was, as a 
one of the emotional caregivers for my daughter, Janine, during mm -hmm. her cancer illness. Right. We had a lot of intimate discussions that we might not have had had right. she had not been dying. Right. And I think as a, as a caregiver, whether it's a family member, a friend, or even somebody mm -hmm. who's working for a, a local agency, a home care right. agency, you are privy to one of the most intimate chapters in somebody's life. And to me, that is a privilege to be a part of that, to be, and again, privy to it and to bear witness to it. So, um, you know, and I, I laud you for the work, the work that you've done with oh, that. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Because um, uh, not everybody can do that. Well, you know, people have made that comment. Oh, I couldn't do that. You know, you're surprised what you can do when it's put right in front of you. And before you know it, you're doing what you thought you couldn't. Mm -hmm. And not only are you doing what you thought you couldn't, you're doing it quite well. Yeah, it's uh, being thrown into those circumstances yeah. really, I think, inform us of skills that we never thought we or imagined we could have even had. So Exactly, exactly. So I'm happy to be where I am today. Well, good. We're, and I'm happy that you're you're happy where you are today. <laughs> so um, there'll be a lot of individuals uh, who in families will be better off because of it, Kathy. So oh, thanks. You're Thank welcome. You. Now, from your experience, what are the joys and challenges of being a caregiver? Wow. And it's hard to think of joys, but I mentioned being an advocate for someone who has a terminal illness or a chronic illness or, or whatever. And there's a certain joy when you have stood your ground long enough and it's kind of paid off. Um, the instance I mentioned with the doctor that I fired, my husband had had brain surgery. They removed as much of the tumor as they could. They couldn't get it all because it was so close to the center that controlled his thought process and his vision and his speech. And they were trying to give him as good a quality of life for the remainder of his life as they could. And a particular doctor came in and said he wanted to try a certain treatment. I didn't feel we were quite ready for those experimental treatments yet. So I challenged him on it. And he insisted, he was very, very insistent. And my husband was the type that he would pretty much, he believes that gods are doctors, or doctors are gods, that if a doctor says, let's do this, then that's what you need to do. So I was even challenging my husband. And finally, I, I won because the, um, the chief surgeon came in to find out what was going on and try to intervene and everything. And I said, look, I've done my research. I know for a fact that the reason Dr. So-and-so wants to treat Tom with this is because this is his study. He received grant money for this. He wants another subject for his study. I don't believe we're ready for it. You just did surgery. Let's see what the results of the surgery are. And I phrased it in such a way that the chief agreed with me. And I won, and I said, and I have one more request. And he said, what's that? I said, I want that doctor removed from Tom's medical team. I don't want him treating my husband anymore. And he was. He was removed, and another doctor replaced him. 
So I would call that a joy. That was my mm-hmm. personal joy because I took the time to do some research, dig in and find out what I felt was really the best situation at that moment. Um, the, the other joys, I think, is to see the person you're caring for relax or the family relax. I know working in a hospice home, you can't imagine, unless you go through it yourself, that if you have labored for days and days and days, months and months and months, taking care of someone, and they finally reach that stage where they're signed on to hospice, and you find a bed in a hospice home, not the hospital on hospice, but a hospice home, you finally get them moved in there, you walk in, and there's just this sense of this incredible burden being lifted off your shoulders. Because there's staff there, there are volunteer caregivers, there are people there providing care for the person you love. Now you can simply spend time with them. You can simply be their daughter, their son, their sister, their brother, their wife, their husband. You can be the person that is actually going to help comfort them in the last days of their lives. That's also a joy when you experience that. Um, as some of the challenges, the biggest challenge is taking care of yourself while you're in that role. And it's something that so many of us overlook. We overlook it many times as parents. We don't necessarily maybe see ourselves in a caregiver role, but we are, we're taking care of our kids. And many times we overlook our own needs. We overlook the fact that we only slept two hours last night, but gosh, They need something, so we do it. So I'd say self-care is probably the single most challenging aspect. And this segues into the next question. As far as caregivers, have you found them in your experience to be reluctant to ask for help? And, And if so, why do you believe this is the case? Well, I think when they are in the role, perhaps, of taking care of their loved one in their own home, in their own personal family situation. Yes, I definitely find that. Um, If you're in the hospital, so much of it depends on the person themselves. Some people just have a greater tendency to not want to ask for help or not reach out for help. But if you exclude the personality component of it, I think it depends on the environment you're in for the most part. Uh, Again, if you're in a hospice home, and and we're very fortunate in this part of New York State, and I think even where you are, there are a few comfort care homes, hospice homes, um, the environment there, the atmosphere is there is completely different. And the family quickly learns that it's okay to ask for help, that the volunteers that provide the care are eager to give that help. That's what they're there for. That's what they find rewarding. And they look for every moment they can do that. So it's a little easier then. But if you're in the hospital, if you're caring for your person at home, man, we do not like to reach out and ask for help. Um, I, I can think of one particular instance with Tom that I was caring for him at home. He was a large man, and I'm not very tall at all. He couldn't walk well, but he would forget that he needed to have a cane or walker. And he would just get up from his recliner and head toward the bathroom. 
he had been having a particularly bad bout of side side effect reactions to some medication, and he had horrible, horrible diarrhea. Well, he didn't quite make it to the bathroom before he had an accident, and it was just, it was a mess. He fell. I had to call the ambulance because I couldn't get him up myself. And I hated to call the ambulance because I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed that I couldn't do it. I was embarrassed that it was an unclean, unhygienic situation. They wound up taking him to the hospital after we got him cleaned up a bit. And off went the ambulance. And I remember texting his son and said, whatever you do, do not bring your kids over to the house until I tell you it's okay. Well, next thing I know, his son met me at the hospital. When I came home that night, my entire place smelled like cleaners, smelled lemony. His wife, bless her heart, had come over and cleaned everything for me and left it spotless. I didn't ask. I wasn't going to ask. I was going to do it myself. But what a blessing. And I think that's the part of what you mentioned earlier is when you have yeah. a community of support with volunteers, that, yep. that with hospice, yeah. When you have like, you know, your daughter-in-law coming over without asking, just doing what you need to do, that yes. allows you to focus on, you know, spending time with Tom. It allows Absol the family yes. members to spend yes. time with their loved ones yes. and really discuss the things that are really important, whether it's yeah. to, to, to do final closure to, to their earthly relationships, yep. whether it's just to spend time exploring um, mm -hmm. the spiritual aspects of dying, whether right. it's just time to be with each other. That type yes. of support, yes, in a, for community or an extended family, which right. hospice to me can be a part of an extended family. Definitely is, definitely is. And I guess so. I guess to summarize it is, if you're in a situation of caregiving where you are physically somewhat isolated, if you don't have that group of people that pop over or call you or something, I think there's a greater tendency to not reach out for help because you feel alone. And you feel you have to do it yourself. Yep. And I think the other thing you mentioned, too, that sometimes as caregivers, we tend to be extremely hard on ourselves, particularly we if we don't feel we do. We did a specific task right. And yeah. after Janine's transition, I really, you know, felt bad because I wasn't really a great physical caregiver. Mm -hmm. I was probably a better emotional caregiver. But I, for me, I wanted to be able to do everything right mm -hmm. for her. Yeah. But as time passed, I realized that one, physical caregiving was not my strength. Right. And that I provided the type of caregiving that I was capable of providing at that time and did the best I could given the situation Absolutely. and given the hand of cards that were dealt. So. Absolutely. And, and I think the memories that you have of that experience are more rewarding for you as well. Yep. Because I think you probably gave Janine exactly what she needed. She needed you. Yep. And, uh, you know, I, I tried to be as present for her as I, as I could possibly be. Right. And in, in retrospect, it's been over 20 years. I realized that, you know, I did okay. I did yeah. more than okay, given, it, it, given everything we had, we had to deal with as a family. So that's right. That's right. Speaking of self-care strategies. 
Mm-hmm. What are some self-care strategies and or resources that you found to be effective for caregivers? Well, resources, I'm going to say, probably are going to be books and podcasts. And I have an entire list of books I recommend and a few I don't recommend. I have an entire list of books I recommend for children as well, different age groups. I've been a voracious reader since, so probably since I could read my first word. So I, that was the first thing I did was turn to a book. And uh, it took me a few different books, but I finally found one that resonated with me because I have a particular personality and I needed mm-hmm. something that was going to talk to me almost like the drill sergeant and kind of say, you know, okay, so you feel sorry for yourself, but this is what you need to do now. That helped me with some self-care. Music can be wonderful for self-care. However, it can also be a trigger. Having said that, the sobbing and everything like that, it's all part of your grief journey. It's all essential for you to progress in your grief. It doesn't do any good to stuff it. That's what I wound up doing, unbeknownst to myself, when decades ago, um, my father died, and then I lost an infant son. And I stuffed them because, you know what? If you're working, you get three days Mm -hmm. for bereavement, then it's back to work. At that time, there really weren't bereavement groups or things like Grief Share. There really weren't books about grief. Nobody talked about it. You just got to the funeral, got your three days, and then boom, back to work. Move on. Keep going. So I don't. I never took care of myself with those. And it's really just been since doing the podcast that I've actually been finally grieving those losses in my life from decades ago. Probably the best self-care tip, if I can, I would offer people is to be with other people, whatever that means. I know it's easy to isolate. I know it's easy to not go outside. But if you have a network of friends or family that you normally enjoy being with, somehow find the strength to go be with them. Yes, there's going to be some awkward moments, For both sides, they're going to feel awkward, too, because they have no clue what to say to you. They want to comfort you, but they don't know how. They don't know the right words. That's why sometimes people say stupid stuff to people who are grieving. All they want to do is help. All they want to do is support. You don't have to do anything special. You don't have to go get a pedicure. Although, for me, that's one way to take care of myself. I always feel very pampered when I go to the spa. Just be with them. Sit and watch a TV show. Just be in the same room. You will find that you will inadvertently pull some of their energy to you. And I believe to the depths of my soul that even without saying a word, Just be in the same room 
is people who care about you and that you feel comfortable with. And who don't have any specific expectations of yes. you at that particular yes. point. Yes, yes. And I'm sure you've had this, Kathy. I've had individuals who have been grieving say, you know, there's times I don't want to talk about mm -hmm. what's going on in my life with grief. Right. There's other times I, I do, but yep. a lot of times I just want to talk about a movie that yep. I've seen or check in with you to see what's been going mm -hmm. on in your life. Yeah. Because that is a way for me to re-engage in the world again. Absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes the oddest things will happen. You might just, I mean, say you go over for a movie night just because somebody, you know, they want you to get out of the house and everything, and you go over just to be with them. So on your agenda, it's it's really hard to get out of here, but I'm going to go over and I'm just going to sit. And I'm only going to stay for a little while, but I'm going to go. So you go over and you sit down, and they sit down, and you know, it may feel a little tense. It may feel a little awkward. You may find, depending on the movie or the TV show that's on, before you know it, someone may be laughing. They might feel a little awkward, too. Someone may disappear in another room and come back out and say, look at this. I found this picture the other day. Look, it's a picture of you and Tom. Well, the floodgates might open, yes. But you know what? It's going to be one of the best things that's ever happened. Because somebody was brave enough to mention their name. And realizing that mentioning their, your, your Tom's name was going mm -hmm. to be more helpful than hurtful. Absolutely. And, you know, and that to me is, is a great gift when our loved ones are remembered yes. by name. Yes, absolutely. There's a quote somewhere that says, for as long as you speak their name, their death will not have been in vain. I've seen that same quote as well, too, but I don't know who that's attributed to. Time I say it, I say I'm going to look it up, and then I forget to, but, you know, oh, well. <laughs> hey, hey, it doesn't matter. I mean, we don't, we don't, need, to, to, we don't need to attribute quotes on this right. podcast anyway. No, but. no, no, but, yeah, it, but it's true, and the more you talk about it, sometimes the more you tell your story, mm -hmm. that's also a technique for self-care, because the more you talk about it, you, the more you start to relax in the remembrance, in the mentioning the name, in the talking about memories, and it starts to bring, one memory will bring back another and then another, and they multiply. And before you know it, everybody in the room is reciting memories. And I think it's important for us to repeat our story over and over because it helps us you know, wrap our heads around what's happened Definitely. and it helps us integrate that narrative yeah. into our, into right. our new life narrative. So. Right. And it makes us feel so good when somebody has a great memory about your loved one that maybe you either had never heard or you didn't really think of, you hadn't heard it in a long time. That makes you feel good too, because you know, somebody else cared for them. Yeah. Somebody exactly. else is missing them. Yeah, Exactly. We talked about this before we started recording about anticipatory grief. Yeah. That is anticipatory grief something that caregivers experience? And if so, how might that change the initial, initial phase of grief once transition arrives? Well, you know, I've asked myself this question many, many times, and I've thought about my own experiences. Um, as it relates to Tom... 
course, I knew when the surgeon came in and told us the results of the biopsy, you know, and he said, well, the, the actual scientific results are going to take a couple weeks to come back. But in looking at this tumor, I know that it is a, a glioblastoma. And he said to me specifically, not to Tom, that it's the most aggressive form of cancer there is. It's different for everyone. And the one he wanted to emphasize, there's absolutely no cure. I don't think it really struck me at first was that the absolutely no cure meant that at some point I was going to have to deal with Tom's death. I knew it. I just wasn't thinking about it. It didn't come to mind. But as the disease progressed and Tom started to decline, it became more and more obvious to me. So I started thinking about some of the things I needed to do. I hit a huge stumbling block, though, because Tom wouldn't talk about it. He wouldn't talk about his illness. He wouldn't talk about the possible death or the certain death. He wouldn't tell me anything that I wanted to know about. What do you want if you should get an infection? What do you want if your heart arrests? He wouldn't answer any of those questions for me. I was completely shut out. So actually, it, my initial thought was that's karma because I didn't want to talk to my mother. So now I know how it feels. But it meant I still had to go through thinking of all these things. So I really expected that when that day came, when that moment came and Tom was gone, that I'd have an easier path. I don't think my path was much easier. In some ways, yes, because I can't, for example, imagine if it's a traumatic death, totally unexpected. I can't imagine what that first notice might be that you find out, the, the instant you find out. I'm sure that is absolutely devastating. Tom's passing was more quiet. I was with him when he took his last breath. I was there as the nurses came in, pronounced him dead, and suggested I head on home because they were going to get him cleaned up, call the funeral home, etc. So I did that. I gave him a final kiss, and I left the building walking to the car. In about a 30-second period of time, I had such a gamut, different gamut of emotions because at first I felt relieved. It was over. Then I felt guilty for feeling relieved. Then I was angry because I was guilty when I knew that I shouldn't be because it was going to end anyway. And I went through all of these emotions. I talk about, you know, the seven phases. I, I think there were far more emotions than that. And I finally did get to my car. I cried all the way home. And thus started my journey in grief. So the anticipatory grief probably helped some, but I think in some ways it created some different challenges because I started to rethink all of the decisions I had made for his medical care. Did I make the right one? And I'm sure everybody, depending on the situation of their loved one's death, you know, the what ifs, what if I had done this? What if I had done this? I got them all still, mm -hmm. every one of them. So in some ways, perhaps 
the anticipatory grief lightens it a bit? I'm not sure. And again, everybody's different. I don't know if there's any scientific way to measure that. You know, I don't think there is. I think the only way we can really measure that is to determine how we feel after the individual's transition, transition right. or passing or death. Right. For me, I knew my daughter like you knew a Tom was, right. was, was going to pass, yeah. was going to transition because she was had a stage four uh, velar rhabdomyosarcoma, which was mm -hmm. a connective muscle tissue cancer right. that just there was yep. no cure for what she had. Right. So we knew there was about a ten to fifteen percent sur five year survival rate. We were right. Ten to ten to fifteen percent five right. year survival rate. So we knew that there was going to be an 85 to 90 percent chance that she would die or transition or pass right. within five years. It took her right. 10 months. Knowing that didn't cushion the emotional blow of her no. of her transition anymore. What it did is it helped me, I think, plan for the practical aspects of her, her death, right. like the funeral, picking out a plot. But the other thing, Kathy, that I think, and this is, and I, with every type of death or cause of death, there are unique challenges that yes. are inherent to that. And yes. the grief process, though similar, may look different. For, yes. for cancer, survive, you know, for us who have mm -hmm. lost a loved one to cancer, it's not only the, the anniversary dates, the birth mm -hmm. dates, it's the date that they were first diagnosed, the date that they mm -hmm. went into remission, mm -hmm. the date that they decided to stop treatment, the date that they wanted a hospice, mm -hmm. the date. I remember all of that. It's been over yep. 20 years. Yeah. So those are also markers that we have to be aware of and sensitive right. as emotional caregivers or coaches yes. or bereavement support specialists if we're going to serve the needs of a family whose loved one is transitioned due to cancer right. or another Absolutely. terminal illness. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, one of those things you can't help but think of is, well, you know, if I were to have to go through this experience again, what would I do differently? And I think for me personally, I would pay much more attention to quality of life issues, much more. I wouldn't be so eager to try those clinical trials without a lot more research. I would worry more about, gosh, let's go on one more trip. Let's go on one more cruise. Let's, let's do this one more time. Yet I think in doing that, that process would make that whole anticipatory piece a lot harder mm -hmm. because you know as you're doing it, as you're experiencing it, that it's probably the last time. Yeah. There's just no easy way around any of it. No, it, it's not even going around that it's going through it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I used to tell my daughters the only way out of a problem is straight through. Yeah. And then when they started taking geography, I said, look, here, I'm going to show you. This is the quickest route straight through, forward. But there is a different side to it. There is a beyond. Mm -hmm. Grief isn't the end. It's beyond grief mm -hmm. that sometimes you find your rewards. Exactly. And as, as individuals or bereavement support specialists, podcast hosts, therapists, when we see individuals come through the other side of grief and re-engage yep. in purpose-driven yep. life, that is our reward. And as you mentioned, it lifts us up and it helps us as well, too, seeing that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Please give our listeners one or two takeaways from your life path that may help them in their own life challenges. Oh, okay. 
I think probably my favorite, I have two favorites that I'll share. And it's not just for grief and grieving. It's for any part of your life. I didn't really discover and focus on these till later in my life. So, of course, I have to wonder, you know, that old what if. What if I had discovered this as somebody in high school? My first one is to try to get rid of as much negativity in your life as you possibly can. And if you're not sure whether you're a negative person or not, try to go 24 hours never saying no or not or never. Try it for 24 hours. It's not easy. Okay? So try for 24 hours to not speak negatively. Then look around you when you get a little better at that. Try to think, what situations do you put yourself in that cause you to feel that way? That cause you to feel that you need to vent, you need to have a drink, you need to take a vacation. Look for that negativity in your life and try to filter it out as best you can. To try to be positive and have a positive attitude will make an incredible difference in your life and in the lives of those around you. They will know that something's different about you. It'll take them quite a while to figure it out. I guarantee it. The other thing I can say, and this is for grievers and those who grieve, but it's also for everybody, is try to have an open mind. So many people say, oh, I would just love to hear from my loved one. I'd love a signal. Those signals might be all around you. And there's a, a little story that, that made me feel this initially. And it was a story about a horrible, horrible flood. And I think of when the Mississippi overflows its banks and, and everything's flooding. And there was an old woman on top of her house. And the waters were rising and rising and rising and rising. And some people came by in a boat and said, here, here, let's help you, help you. No, God is going to save me. God is going to save me. I will wait. Boat left. Pretty soon, helicopter came. Come on, we're going to lower this bag, basket. We're going to pick you up. No, God is going to save me. God is going to save me. Well, you know, the end of that story is the fact that she died and she got to heaven. And she said to God, why didn't you save me? And God said, I sent you a boat. I sent you a helicopter. You know, you mm -hmm. missed my signals. Keep your minds open. You might, everybody loves the cardinals and it makes them think of that. But there are other things too. It could be a dime. For me, one of the things I see, I'll go into a restaurant. If I see a bottle of hot sauce, I think mm, Tom's here mm -hmm. because he was a hot sauce Oh, gosh, he loved it. He was an expert and wanted the hottest sauce ever. So be positive and keep your minds open. You will find yourself blessed in ways you never expected. I remember several versions of that story circulating yes. around social media. What you were yeah. telling, and I was smiling because I knew at the end was going to be yeah. fun. Yeah. You know, if we're open to the signals that God or the universe or, or whatever you believe. Power, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Whatever you believe, you're open to that. It can create more clarity. It can create maybe more peace. 
And when you realize that other dimensions do exist, you look at life, death, and life after death mm-hmm. a lot differently. You do. And the only reason I started the podcast, I believe, was because I kept my mind open. Yep. I knew there was a path for me. I just didn't know what it was or where it was or where I would find it. And then one day, just sitting very quietly, the word podcast flittered through my mind. I wasn't even listening to podcasts. I don't know where it came from. Some kind of divine intervention. Sounds that way to me, Kathy. Yep. Finally, if people want to contact you, find out more about your podcast, more about your services, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, we like to think the name of our podcast is easy enough. It's As I Live and Grieve. Instead of that, oh, As I Live and Breathe. It's As I Live and Grieve because I do believe that I am going to grieve Tom and my other losses for the rest of my life. The grief will change, of course. My life will change. So they can look for that podcast on any podcast app. Also, our website is asiliveandgrieve.com. They can go there. They can email me at info at asiliveandgrieve.com. Get the pattern. Mm-hmm. So those are the easiest ways. I'm also on Facebook. We do have a um, a podcast page there as well. I'm on Facebook as Kathy Gleason. Uh, yeah, I live in the Rochester, New York area, so I'm easy enough to find. I think for uh, academics, I had School of Hard Knocks. So if you find that, you found me, and I'd love it if you'd reach out. Thank you. And thanks again, Dave, for having me. Well, Kathy, thanks for being a guest on the podcast. And I, I had so much fun talking with you. I think it was a great conversation. And I hope we could I do, do it again. Hope we could do it again sometime. I think we should. I think our paths are going to cross off and on for a long, long time. I, I do believe so, too. So, okay. And with that, that's another wrap on another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I'm your host, Dave Roberts, wishing you peace. Thank you for listening to this episode, and please remember to share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues, and don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both.